There's a very um, inspiring metaphor that I love about um, if you went scuba diving, which I have never done. But um, if one did go scuba diving, one is supposed to go with a friend. You're not supposed to go alone. And when you go down, uh, clearly you have, you're meant to have enough air. Right? (laughs) And say your friend, something happened and they ran out of air. And so the dilemma really is, do you um, give them all your air? No. But you try to share enough air so that you both can come up, right? You, you, you make sure you have enough air yourself or you can't help your friend. And I think that um, this is something that we often lose track of, that, you know, that we need enough air. And, and in this case, we're talking about spiritual air. So I'd like to... Um, talk about this in terms of the seven factors of awakening. But tonight I probably won't get to all of them. I'll just get to some of them. Jesse went over them the other night. I'll just go over them again briefly. Um, But of course, they're a list, but a list that has a lot of um, meaning and interconnections. And sometimes you can look at it as linear, um, and sometimes it's helpful to look at it in a nonlinear way. Mindfulness is the first of the seven, and it's, um, it's meant to be assumed that we know that it's present with all the other factors. A description I like of this is that if you have a, if you're weaving, you make the warp first, and the warp is in the seven factors is considered to be mindfulness. It's that important, that uh, intrinsic to awakening. And then the other six, as Jesse was talking about, the um, investigation energy or courageous energy and joyful interest are considered energizing. And then calm, concentration, equanimity are, are considered tranquilizing. When they come into complete balance, those factors, in one moment, all it takes is one moment, uh, that's considered to be a moment of awakening. Um, and it's, I think that what's beautiful about these seven factors that is when the Buddha was sick, um, he would want these um, chanted to him. He considered them so healing, even for himself. You know, that's amazing. And it's said that they're so powerful that all the uh, devas, the guardian angels, will come in to listen to them because they're so heartening and so uplifting and so important. So they, they are like getting spiritual air. And sometimes one of these might be um, something we're working on, just one, for years. And other times it might be a few. It's just each of us um, is a unique weaving. And um, there's no second guessing how these are evolving and in, uh, inter, interweave, interplay. In the, as Jesse said, there are a lot of, um, there are some kind of warlike imagery in the um, text. And one of them is this battle between these seven factor, factors of awakening and the five hindrances. Uh, so it, it's considered to be a battle until the seven factors are in balance and then the battle is over. There's peace. 
so that that sense of all conditioned things are arising and passing away, understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. The happiness in this case means peace, unconditional acceptance of things as they are. So another way to relate to these, I think, um, besides being air, is to know that all we need is already within us. That we're not making them happen, we're not manufacturing them, we're learning how to access them within us. So that's very heartening that that air is already there. You know, it's like, it's so heartening. I think that we often need reassurance. And, and, and this is one place to find it. So clearly we've spent a lot of time talking about mindfulness, so I'm not going to go into it too much, but I think there's one interesting aspect of it that I wanted to mention, which is often the more mindful we get, the less mindful we feel. (laughs) And that, it, it can be a great place of doubt in practice. It's like, it's amazing. And, you know, when you get really close to what's happening and it starts getting less solid, it'll feel like um, the present moment, whatever's happening, becomes less graspable. And uh, we'll feel like, oh, am I, really, am I really paying attention? But we're actually seeing how quickly things are going and that they're disappearing on us. I find this, um, when, I'm on, when I'm on my own retreats, Uh, when I have a feeling that I've never had a moment of mindfulness before, I know it's good practice. And it's just so shocking. It'll be like, wow, I've never felt this way before. And it's like, yeah, because you've really let go of the past and you've really let go of the future. How could you possibly have ever felt that way before? Uh, And it's always kind of a surprise, like, wow, it really is that refreshing. It really is that new, that complete letting go. And some people, you know, for myself, um, I find the expression letting be more helpful for me now than I did in the past, meaning that just letting things be, you don't have to even let them go. The clouds in the sky actually do not need our assistance, right? They do actually manage to come and go, right? And the breath actually doesn't really need our assistance, you know, as much as we want to fiddle with it or anything. We start to see anything that appears, it will come and go by itself. Um, sometimes that requires an enormous amount of patience if it's moving that slowly or if it's moving that quickly. Investigation. This is a particular kind of awareness and um, It's a non-conceptual investigation. It's not done through the thought process. So it's said that insight will appear, but it's 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 it happens. It's an aha. It's always an aha moment. It's not that we've been ruminating on something. It means that we've let the attention drop into the experience, non-conceptually. And it's almost like one can never talk about that well enough. So if you, if you notice your hands right now, you can notice your hands um, as a memory, a visual memory of hand. The word hand is, and the experience of the word hand intellectually is, a, is always a memory. 
in the past. But a non-conceptual experience is interesting because often when we try to bring our attention into our hands, if you pay attention carefully, you'll notice you travel down with your eyes and you, you have this sense of my body and bo- body, which is just a word, but we travel down and we see our face, arm, hand, and we get there and it's like, hmm, <laughs> what would non-conceptual mean, right? And it takes a lot of practice, a lot of practice to have the attention drop in there without the visual connection. Lots of practice. I remember the first time I had my attention in my pinky without the visual image, and I was walking around here going, wow, you know, it's just like, you know, you'll find that you peak. You know, you'll find that you're sitting and you'll have this sense of this non-solid, just, it can just be heaviness. It can just be warmth. But that's so different than the word hand. And it, it's said with anything, whether it's a, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, an emotion. Um, if you can have some continuity, as I was saying this morning, the vitaka vichara, the connect, sustain, we can add in so much pressure with this, but you don't have to. Give it just a few seconds. Just see if you can do it. What I like to do with myself is I just check. I check to see if I can do it. Every once in a while, sitting, walking, eating, whatever I'm doing, I check to see if my attention can do that. And if it can't, no problem all. And I mean that. I know that's totally okay. That means there's not enough energy or interest or mindfulness. And then I learned again and again and again just how to practice in a more ordinary way. That doesn't even mean that it's totally conceptual, walking, just being with the changing pressures and hardness at the bottom of the feet. But it might not feel like you're in that kind of deeper groove of minute particles. <laughs> There's a um, quite an old couple um, in the north of the Big Island that started Vipassana practice quite late in life. Um, so they have... You know, a number of the ailments one tends to get as you get older. And this um, woman that we know um, fell and hurt her knee badly enough that she had to be helicoptered um, from the island to Honolulu to have an operation. And we had been introducing this whole idea of like how you can be with tightness. Instead of the word pain, and getting caught in the word pain and the reaction in the mind to that of aversion and getting caught up in that. She started um, being interested in this um, investigation and how you could start to notice the pain of throbbing, burning. She really hurt her knee. She needed immediate surgery. And yet, without a whole lot of years of practice, She was helicoptered over, had surgery, was in the hospital for a while, came back, and she was luminous from the joy of knowing that there was a difference between the reaction to the pain and being with the sensations. Like really luminous, just like um, that happiness of investigation, of not being imprisoned by the pain. And the, the liberation of that. That she really got the difference between aversion to pain and the actual sensations. That's liberation. It's an aspect of liberation. There are many aspects to liberation. This is a wonderful quotation from... Srinazargadatta, he was asked, um, or he was, the question is really a statement 
pain is not acceptable. <laughs> so it's, it's supposed to be a question, but you can see there's not a lot of room for, <laughs> you know, maybe some alternative idea. And so he said, why not? Did you ever try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. It, it's, this is just the way it is. It's, it's, not, it's just that for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. That's incredible. You don't all look convinced. I had an old dear friend that um, had to go in for cancer treatment last year, and um, he really um, was doing the same thing that this other woman I described was, but he had a lot much um, practice. And uh, he had some years of working with Sayada Upandita where the style of really just over and over, when you can, noticing the difference between the word pain and the actual physical sensations and how they change. Um, And he went in, you know, for treatment after treatment, and one time he started crying, and the, the doctor came over and was really worried, and he said, what's wrong? And he said, I'm so grateful. And he was just sobbing. I'm so grateful for all the years of practice I did. And I can lay here, and I can see all my friends here suffering so much, and I'm not suffering that much. I mean, it's painful, but it's like I can just notice the changing sensations, and I'm, I'm not caught. I'm not taking it personally. That doesn't mean it makes it pleasant. This is very important. You know, we always want that deal, right? It's that deal, like, okay, I'm going to be with this, and maybe it's going to, you know, be pleasant. That's not the deal. (laughs) The deal is understanding. It's if we go through it, we understand it. It's It's the avoidance of suffering that causes more suffering. And we we see that there are descriptions, like William Blake, he said, um, to see the world in a grain of sand. And Emily Dickinson had a very short poem that she said, nothing, nothing is the force that renovates the world. And, And if you start looking into which, you know, another poem, she says, I love it, her name's Emily, right? Excuse Emily and her atoms. <laughs> A-T-O-M-S. Excuse Emily and her atoms. The North Star is of small fabric, but it implies much, presides, yet. And I think culturally we tend to think that smallness might mean less or that it's deficient. And for her, small meant like a um, fabric, a dust mote. In, in her time, it, which it has become an obsolete meaning, but it actually meant at home. these minute particulars or the dust mote or the twinkling of an eye 
it actually meant at home. We've lost that meaning in our language. And so, yeah, she means, she means by small atom, North Star, fabric. Do we get that sense when we, we just try to check in and see when we receive a sound? It's like we're receiving the particles of the universe. If we receive any body sensation, we know this intellectually. We know we're made of stardust, right? Right? (laughs) (laughs) And so there are many different ways we can investigate. For example, There's a possibility of um, noticing many different ways we can investigate fear. And it could be that we notice many planning thoughts. And a lot of the time, uh, we might just have a generic note of fear or thinking. And then if, it, if the planning keeps going, we might note planning, right? And the, the investigation is still on that thought level that we just notice the thought come and go. And we're learning not to be bothered by it. We see it clearly. It's just planning. It's just a thought. No problem. But then, as we know, it can start really repeating, really repeating. Uh, and then often there's something underneath it. And sometimes there's a willingness to notice what that might be. Sometimes there isn't a willingness, and that's why I'm saying check. Just check. If there's no willingness, there's no problem. There's going to be another opportunity. <laughs> right? This is what, it's almost like we think we've got to do it now, but actually we, are, we're not, we don't have enough air. There isn't enough investigation, energy, you know, joyful interest. So if we don't have enough air, maybe we just cultivate calm concentration, that rest, that tranquility, which we've been saying, it builds the energy. So sometimes, why do we keep pushing it at that point? Because we feel like we should be interested in it, or we feel like we should be willing to do it. And often, if we look at Okay, so we still try to be with the fear, but actually we see we're actually trying to get rid of it. So investigation, if it's going through the filter of aversion or attachment, is just going to reinforce aversion and attachment. And this is something, I mean, this took me years to understand that I'd be sitting there, sitting through tons of physical pain and really being in the minute particulars, but actually I was just reinforcing more and more aversion to it. And this is what we're all saying means back off. It doesn't mean you're being lazy. It doesn't mean you go into some fantasy for five hours. It means maybe you go to hearing, right? It's like you learn that you try to find something else that's happening in the present moment that can hold the attention. Again, to build up the rest, the calm, the concentration. But maybe <clears throat> we, won't, we will um, start seeing that we're noticing the fear from a conceptual awareness and that we actually could. We check and we see that maybe we are willing to explore it non-conceptually. And this is when we start to investigate an emotion like fear, which is usually some thought and some body sensations. And it's helpful to drop into our body and just, it's, it's, I say it a lot, but just check. You just check and see, are there any corresponding physical sensations? Is the heart indifferent? Is it open? Is, it, you know, is there change uh, uh, even within that? And there are times when um, you're, you notice that there is no wanting to get rid of it. 
it's, this doesn't mean it should be like that all the time, but if you notice there's no wanting to get rid of it, then you can, I even call it bathing in it. You just let the attention drop into the physical sensations. And sometimes with fear, I find it effervescent. You know, there's so much anxiety that there's so much in, you know, there's so much energy and so many sensations. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, it's awesome. You know, it is. If you just, if there's no resistance and you're not taking it personally and you're not wanting to get rid of it, it's, it's an incredible achievement. Especially if you've, it's a karmic knot. It's like if, there's, if you've learned to have so much resistance to that. And I know the first time I was able to just say, I'm afraid. And it's okay. It, it just, these things feel like miracles. If the conditioning is resistance. I remember the first time I could do that. It was so powerful. And it doesn't have to be fear. This could be aversion or anger or loneliness. It doesn't have to be that emotion. It can be enthusiasm. It can be over-exuberance. It can be worthlessness. It can be self-hatred. There's such an array of (laughs) possibilities. But it's the same process. You check and see, is there willingness? Can we be non-conceptual? And if we can't, it's not a failure. It's not a defeat. It's just these impersonal factors of awakening. And they're very watercolory. They're not like an oil painting. They, like, you know, there might be energy kind of comes up and then energy goes down. But the equanimity comes up, the calm goes down. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not, um, it's alive. These are alive. So a peak experience with the non-conceptual awareness with investigation is when knowing the experience is indistinguishable from the fear. You can't call it fear anymore, just like you can't call your hand a hand anymore, or you can't call pain pain anymore. You can use the word, but actually the experience could never be described with words. This is a, um, another question to Sri Nazargadatta. He was asked, <clears throat> is there no such thing as permanent perfection? And he said, yes, there is. But it includes all imperfection. <laughs> that's not how we operate. But that's the truth. We've talked a lot about energy, um, right effort, but just to um, just restate, there's so much versatility to right effort. There's there's such a, a, a range of instruction, and we tend to like to just have it be simple, <laughs> but actually it's not that simple in that. Um, One of the things, again, it took me a long time to understand about myself is that I have very predictable times of energy in the day. When I wake up before any caffeine, I pretty much have none. <laughs> you know, that's just how I am. Other people wake up and it's like they're already awake. That's not me. <laughs> but if I have a cup of tea, you know, kind of a couple hours go by, you know, some energy starts, it's like, and so that's the time when I would start really secluding myself on retreat and kind of secluding, meaning I'd kind of walk kind of far away from people. That would work for me. Other people I know, when they have more energy, they feel more safe and comfortable if they walk near people. Do you see why you can't come up with a formula? 
Because the formula is that each of us is different. And so for me, I would understand that I usually have my best energy before lunch, but it doesn't last that long. You know, it takes a few hours to wake up. And then, you know, so that would be a time where I'd sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, very secluded, understanding that by the time I ate lunch, after lunch, wow, my energy would go down. And then it would kind of build but never like it was in the morning, build so I would kind of do some balance of more open awareness, you know, be around the group a little more (laughs) for the support, kind of go back to being alone a bit. Uh, You experiment. It doesn't have to be the same all day. And nothing works perfectly. So I could seclude myself for some hours and it's not like it's going to work every time, meaning that I would, I would be able to see more clearly. But over time, I know that about myself. I know when to step on the gas, when to break, when to put in the clutch, more or less. <laughs> Again, it never, you know, you know, it's almost like it's such a long day that, you know, what worked two walking periods ago isn't going to work, right? It's just like you have to keep coming up with different ways to keep yourself interested. I mean, I remember so many ways in which I try to uh, make my experience better than it was. Like, if I eat this much, and if I, you know, like I sleep this much, you know how you do that. You're like, I'm going to do this, and then, it's, and then it works once, and then it's not going to work again. <laughs> Why? Because we're controlling. So the traditional way of explaining the seven factors is that um, the mindfulness allows us to be in the present with whatever is happening. And that the investigation helps us, the Buddha described it as going from a dark room to turning a light on. That that's how powerful investigation is. You go from not being able to see at all to, to lighting up things. And then it said that then we need the courage to face what we're looking at. It's beautiful. Courageous energy. The courage to face it. And one of the reasons we tend to be ambivalent about non-conceptual experience is that there's a lot of voltage in it. It's energizing. Things get less solid. You know, you start being able to see more clearly than just, you know, this is <laughs> this is a pair of glasses, this is Michelle, this is a Buddha, this is like it's all known that's great. It's the relative level of reality where we have nailed it down. Um, it's a it's a stage of development when we learn words, when we're really, really young. It helps us learn how to function in the world. And it's very important. The conditioned world of reality is very important. Um, but like we've said, it's like if you looked at an iceberg, there's only, we only see a tip, and the rest of it we don't see. And that's, there are many levels of reality, from the um, relative level of reality to on the very deep level the unconditioned. Nibbana, it's called. You know, and it's like as you as you go through these layers of reality, it gets less solid, less conditioned. And on this deep level before the unconditioned is the deep equanimity. And and I think that one of the things that's hard for us to learn, and we were talking about it in one of our groups, my groups today, is that um, we have this idea if we go into the less conceptual, we're going to lose the conceptual. But I wish it was so. (laughs) 
I mean, it is just not so. It's just, um, this is like um, this gift of exploration. It's like our human birthright to explore what's happening on a non-conceptual way, on any level. And yet we're afraid that it means that it's going to be permanent, <laughs> that it's not so solid, or that we're going to see things you know, like heat burning, right? We're afraid that we're going to always be seeing things just disappearing, or whatever it is. It's like, ah! you know, it's going to be permanent. I better go. I better leave the retreat, right? You know, so we make sure it gets all solid again. But it's going to be solid in two hours, folks, if you're lucky. Right? I mean, that's lucky if the non-conceptual lasts that long. It's just, it's just, we get these glimpses, and this is important. We get glimpses of insight, and they are so powerful, and they have so much voltage. And if you're a type that kind of accesses that more, you have to learn to regulate the voltage and learn how to actually spend more time up there in the relative level so that it balances the energy. And that's all it is. It's learning how to regulate voltage. Everyone can learn to do that. Anyone can learn to do that. When push comes to shove, guess what you do? You eat more. Right? It really grounds you. Yeah, it's true. If you eat enough, you're going to fall asleep and take a nap. Like, right? It's like, it's not that complicated. <laughs> go for a walk around the loop. If that doesn't work, go twice. I bet by the time you go twice, you're going to be snoring in your room. No, really, it's like, it's not that hard to regulate, but it's, it's like we tend to, for those of us who had a hard time learning how to regulate, it's because we don't like the ordinary. We want it to be deep. And so we'll just keep it in there and do more and more, like not eat, you know, not sit five hours without moving, right? That kind of gets a little more voltage going. It's, 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 it's not that hard to learn if you're open to balance, if you're open to, um, on a very deep level, on that, when that level of relative to um, absolute or conditioned to unconditioned. On, in, the, in the equanimous level, there's no contradiction and paradox. Deep and surface are the same. A sound is just a sound. A thought is just a thought. A body sensation is just a body sensation. Fear is just fear. And you see it so clearly, and it can be very um, dissolved and molecular, or it can be very solid, and there's just no resistance to however it happens. There's no need for it to be deep. There's no need for it to be ordinary. And you start controlling less and less and less from that place of deep understanding and deep acceptance that you really deeply know that awakening can happen any moment. And how could it not? The truth is always here. Peace is always here. If you look at that again, these um, levels of reality, if we know they're here all the time, we know we can drop into full awakening any moment. It's always there. Just like somebody comes in here and says, Michelle, you have a phone call. That's always there, right? You can, you can just get that anything is accessible. It's just a matter of what? Training, practice. Another way you could see this is that if you... <laughs> I learned this years ago. Um, if you see these levels of reality like an elevator, you know, so that, that you get to know each floor really well but you learn not to be attached to any floor. And it becomes skillful means, all skillful means. Sometimes you just have to go from ground floor to the top floor. (laughs) You know, it's just like something happens, and you're back to that level. No problem. 
whoop, you're back to the other level. It's all moving and shaky, no problem. You get, you, you get used to all these different levels. things we learn so deeply in this practice is that um, the effort to understand how things are, it's so worthy of our effort, but we're not meant to be attached to the result of the effort. And that, that helps us in everything we do in life, because anything worth doing in life is hard. It takes a lot of effort. But if you're attached to the result of the effort and and it's hard to do, it's too frustrating. We give up. Okay, so let me give you an example. Full enlightenment. That's a worthy goal, right? (laughs) It's a little hard to pull off. How many do you know? (laughs) How many fully enlightened beings do you know? They've really done it. Totally, totally liberated. I've known a few. And the scent, the ambrosia, the scent of it, just the scent of it makes you cry. It's so incredibly beautiful. It's so incredibly worthy of our effort. And maybe... One of the only great things worthy of our effort. A true saint, not a pseudo-saint or a fake saint, but a real one has gotten free of aversion and attachment. The idea is not to like, this isn't an endurance test. (laughs) It's like, It's really meant to make us have the happiness of peace. I might make it through the energizing factors. Um, So the next one is joyful interest. And again, it said that if we can... This, if you look at this in a linear, classical way, there's the mindfulness, the investigation, the lights come on. We have the courage to come closer to what's happening or with it. We get a relationship with it. And if we can maintain that a bit, it's said that joyful interest will arise. It will arise. It's inevitable. And we all know that there'll be a time when rare... But genuine interest arises. This is it. It's joyful interest. And it doesn't matter if it's painful, pleasurable, or neutral. It's, I love this description. It's called the deep, the deep delight in the truth of things. What a beautiful description. Joyful interest. So if we're doing metta, suddenly we actually are interested in the difficult. That's why we don't push it. That's why we don't force it. Because we know at some point if you're doing it and you're going along, maybe five years from now, maybe two minutes from now, that that joyful interest will come. It's the force of the metta that does that. And in the vipassana, it's the force of the mindfulness that does that. You don't have to make it happen. That's why I was saying, if there's no willingness to look don't <laughs> move your attention to something else. I was reading um, about a book recently and um, it's by Richard Prum, and he's an ornithologist and evolutionary biologist from Yale. And um, nobody agrees with him yet, but <laughs> he's saying 
that birds are beautiful because they are beautiful to themselves. Not because it's an adaptive, some kind of adaptive strategy that, you know, the genes, it'll make the genes stronger over time. It's merely beauty for beauty's sake. And I think that's so important. You know, Darwin said it, everybody decided that wasn't true. And this guy's kind of investigating it. Um, But I think that what's so important, and it it really uh, comes in with the mudita practice, or um, empathetic joy practice, the gratitude practice, but it's really remembering another way we can balance ourselves is actually (coughs) when push comes to shove, looking at something pleasant, we know sometimes is the antidote. The Buddha called joy the gateway to enlightenment. This is no small matter. The gateway to enlightenment is this joyful interest. And if you're like closed down and meaningless and hopeless and, you know, despairing, etc., <laughs> you know, sometimes it's good to lighten up. You know? <laughs> thing I want to say about that is, you know, there's so much to say about each one, but um, this has to do with receiving. And so when we can't receive and we're in kind of the pits of despair or, you know, just super indifferent and numb, that idea that there might be some way we can open to something beautiful at times and um, find interest again. Um, is very important. There's a word for begging bowl in Japanese that means just enough. And um, I could go into this a lot more, but if you think of like the old Buddhist teaching in the way, it's like the monks and nuns have to beg for food. They're completely dependent every day for food, completely dependent. He set up a system of complete dependence. And that's not our favorite thing, I have to say. We're not trained to like that, right? And the, but what, what this means is that the lay people and the monk, the monastics, are totally interrelated. Um, but if you relate to a day, if you relate to a day as what you've received in your begging bowl for the day, your alms, your alms for the day is your experience of what happened today. Then that word, that expression, just enough, is very powerful because I think that's what helps us lead into joyful interest. Because this is joyful interest is not, oh, I had too much pain today. (laughs) It's like, what was in your bowl today? A monastic has to eat whatever is in their bowl that day, or they don't eat. And sometimes it's not good. (laughs) And sometimes it's great. But you're just not, you know, you just eat it. And but we're doing the same thing with our experience. Was it just enough? When we take one bite of the food, is it just enough? Because that sense of being ahead is where we feel deficient, where we don't, where we don't feel full. We don't receive it. But we're not doing that with, again, our birthright, with sound, with sight, with smell, with taste, with touch, with thought, with emotion, you know, it's like, where are we? (laughs) We're we're not receiving the life of our life, and then we can't learn from it. So just enough, it's like walking, when the bell rings and we walk out the the, um, doorway here, it's like from there to the doorway, can it be just enough? 
It'll be plenty. Like Emily and her atoms. There's so much. But it's like if we don't receive that journey, we won't even be there and it won't, won't be enough. And then there won't, it, the next part of the journey won't be enough. It won't be enough. It won't be enough. It won't be enough. And then there's doubt and more doubt. When we take just enough, um, there's contentment. My first long retreat was in Wales in 1979. Um, And being from New England, uh, it was the month of June, and I had thought it might be warm. (laughs) Which, it it was so not warm. I got to say, you think this is weird weather. I mean, this was just like pouring rain, freezing, uh, really rustic. Um, so all, all of the women in the retreat slept in one room. Just to give you, those were the good old days, folks. <laughs> all the men slept in one room. There was nothing between you and everybody, um, etc. And um, one bathroom. And I was, um, I'm a highly allergic person, and I'm highly allergic to mildew and mold. And this place was just reeking. You know, it was just like there were these old, I think the rugs came from maybe, you know, Queen Victoria. (laughs) It was just like, wow, were they old, and wow, were they mildew and musty. And um, I was so allergic, and there was nowhere to go. It was really hard. Um, And then I finally went down this little dirt road and I found this place that was being built that um, had a little bit of a roof. It had no walls, uh, but it was freezing cold raining. But I would sit out there sometimes, but then (laughs) they started working on it again. So I lost my teeny bit of uh, refuge. Uh, And then about three weeks into it this month, the sun came out. And I was just, you know, talk about... Ecstasy. I was like, the anticipation of the pleasantness was just, I could hardly, I was just like, oh, you know, and I got my Zafu and I got a blanket. And uh, I, even though it was musty, I went running up to this field and I put the blanket down, I put the Zafu down, and I was like, oh, you know, the expectation of pleasantness was way off the charts. And so, and it was for a few minutes. <laughs> It was sunny and it was 10 in the morning and I'm like, oh, it's just beautiful and it's, I was warm, you know, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I didn't understand anything I've talked about yet, <laughs> by the way. I was just like, I just was in heaven and I was not noting enjoying, enjoying, enjoying. I was completely lost in it and so excited. And um, then these flies started landing on me. I mean, it was just the last straw. I'm telling you, I'd had it. I was just like, whoa. But I was stuck. I mean, I had I tried everything to get away with, from Duca, and I was stuck there. With, but there were not just one or two flies. There were lots of flies. And it was so painful. But that's often how we learn, I have to say, as humans. We just, you know, we're like this, and we're trying to do And I call it mindfulness as a last resort. You know, it's just like, okay, maybe I better try to be mindful of this. <laughs> what a novel idea. You know, it's all, that's how we are. 
And I just started realizing, wow, maybe I could try accepting this. (laughs) You know, it sounds novel, but it was huge for me. And I did. And it's like that's insight. I had this glimpse. It didn't last, but it was a glimpse of this contentment and peace. And I had an interview the next day, and I went in to see the teacher, and he was so happy for me. He was just like, that's peace. That's what the practice is. It's unconditional peace. Unconditional. Without conditions. And sometimes, as um, Jesse said, sometimes all we see is the conditions. We see the conditional. My nephew... um, when the first Persian Gulf War started, he was um, joined the Marines, and uh, he was over there. He went. He was in the front lines. Um, lived through the friendly fire. Most of his friends got killed in friendly fire. It was quite a hard thing. And I was on retreat with Sayadaw Upandita, and um, I was trying to um, send metta to Saddam Hussein. President Bush and my nephew and all I saw was conditional love it was amazing I was just like I love Saddam Hussein if he stops the war I love President Bush if he stops the war and I love my nephew Tony if he doesn't die over and over and over you know and I hadn't learned you know backing off to what's easy but I did learn a lot about that it's okay when it's conditional. It was just, I just thought, oh, I'm doing my best, I can't make it through, but I'm trying. It was humbling, but it was really powerful. I have to say, it's like, you know, sometimes with difficult times, it drives you in deep. And I found it sometimes. I could find it. I could make it through sometimes. But it was only with getting exasperated with the the conditional. And so the same in Vipassana. We'll get get exasperated with the conditional. But you find the unconditional by going through it again and again and again. And then you get more and more air. The more you have of the seven factors, the more air you have, and the more air you access, the more you can share it. It's not a selfish endeavor. So I'd like to end with something. (laughs) Let's try. It's a one of the collected poems of Nud Rasmussen. And this is from um, a place in Greenland, the last place he went, which was the most remote. Um, And he said about that place, that all those who have lived up there and built a house in some sheltered cove have never allowed their spirit to be broken by its severity never allowed its, their spirits to be broken by its severity, rather than they were enthralled by its grand beauty. I came down where the ocean lies before the shore and looked out over the small lands in the north, lying blue under the clear sky, and I thought, Someday, when I'm tired and lie down to rest, someday when I die, all this that I see will be the same to others, and the air will arch blue and quiver in the heat. In just the same way to those who live when I am gone, but I become faint at all this beauty. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.